First Thessalonians chapter 2, we'll be reading the first six verses. It says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with the pretext of greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. When I got out of Bible college, the first ministry that we went to was to be a youth pastor in the greater Seattle area. After just a little while, there were some things going on in the church that we had not known about that were within the leadership of the church and some very serious issues. And it resulted in the removal of a pastor and some other uh, things that happened as well. At first, the church went through it very well. People kind of banded together and grouped together during a time of hardship. Afterwards, they kind of started to tear one another apart. And it was a a difficult thing to to see and to be a part of. But then as they started to look for new pastors, um, we just got to where we felt like we were very much in the way. Like when a new pastor would come in and he'd come in for a few days to, so for the people to meet him and I got to meet him and would talk with him and stuff. And some people would be like, well, how come Greg's not up there on the platform with him? We want to see how he interacts with Greg. And I'm like, you know what, that's, it's, it's not about this. In fact, my intent was that when they got a new pastor that I would offer my resignation. Not because I wanted to, but I just thought that he should have the opportunity to pick who was serving with him. And I would like him to put together his own team. At any rate... We ended up in the way, and so we left the ministry there, quit going to church there, started looking for another church to attend, and by that time the church was beginning to have some struggles, and and so quite a few families were beginning to leave the church, and down the road a little bit, we were looking for a church and not finding anything that we felt real a part of in the close proximity. Occasionally we'd bump into or somebody would call us or something, and they were having similar struggles, people that had left there as well. After a Several months or whatever, some people asked, maybe we should just start a church. And quite a few people on board with that idea. And so we, we, we decided to go ahead and, and start a church out. And so we did. And, and you know what, with the way things came together and everything, it just, a year or so down the road, it just, I don't know, it just seemed like nobody, we weren't moving on. Fortunately, we looked for a place to rent, and the only place we found to rent was actually a building that the previous church had rented a while before. And so we found ourselves back in the same building that they had been before they'd moved to a new building. And, and not only that, but the people, when, when, when we deal with how are we going to do things as a church, how, there was always a comparison being made back to the church that was behind us. So it was like, at that point, I just really questioned. I questioned my own motives. Is it my own pride that allowed me to go this direction? Am, am I being a benefit to these people? Uh, or am I just leaving them trapped in a cycle? And, and maybe, I, maybe I'm in the way again. I tried to not be in the way, but maybe I'm in the way again. Maybe this is not the direction we should have gone. Maybe we should have been more patient finding a new church. And I just started to, to question that. And finally, I just kind of came to the conclusion that, you know what, we, we need a change. And at the time, I thought we were going to be going back for more schooling. But God had other plans, which... In, uh, within the next year or two, landed us here. And uh, we've enjoyed that for the last 25 years. But but the point is, you know, it kind of came to the point in that ministry where I was just wondering, is this worthwhile? Uh, are we spinning our wheels? Well, actually in First Thessalonians and chapter 3, 
he has a similar concern. In chapter 3, verse 5, he says, For this reason, now the reason that he's talking about is the fact that he knew that in Thessalonica there was a lot of persecution of Christians, that they were going to be facing some hardships. And so what the Apostle Paul is worried about is that they are going to go through these hardships and those are going to be tough to endure, tough to take, and they might back away from their faith in order to not be persecuted. And so the Apostle Paul, after he planted the church there in Thessalonica, he had this ongoing concern that are those new believers, are they strong enough in their faith to be able to endure the hardships that they would have to endure? And that's why he says in 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 5, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But you know what he did? He sent Timothy. He sent Timothy to go check it out. Timothy came back and said, nah, they're doing good. And he gives them this report of how well they're doing. And that's why in our passage here in chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, for you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. In other words, the Apostle Paul is saying, our trip to you was time well spent. Our ministry of the Gospel was well spent. Why? Because, because of the things that we learned in the last couple of weeks. Right? Because of the faith, hope, and love that He mentioned to them in chapter 1. Because of how they assimilated themselves into the church. And, and these people that at first were imitators of the Apostle Paul in their faith became very quickly examples and spread the Gospel throughout the whole countryside. Obviously, our ministry to you guys was not in vain. It was a very worthwhile ministry. And as we see it unfold in the next six verses here, we're going to see why it was a worthwhile ministry. In fact, we're going to see kind of four requirements of a worthwhile ministry. Well, the first one is persistence. In verse 2, he says, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know. You see, uh, their ministry was one of persistence. In other words, they kept at it. Some of the same things that they were concerned about the Thessalonians for. Are they going to be able to endure the hardships? Well, the Apostle Paul, when we look at his ministry, his was definitely a ministry where they endured the hardships. And that's the first thing that he points out to them in verse 2. He says, as you know, though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi. Philippi is the last stop that they hit before Thessalonica. If you go to the book of Acts, you kind of find the history book of the early church. And so you find where Paul went to Philippi and you find where he went to the Thessalonians and find where he went to Corinth and Athens and these different places. Well, if you find yourself in Acts chapter 16, we find where the Apostle Paul went to Philippi. In Acts chapter 16, verse 16 through 24, it says, As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. And Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, 
They said these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Apparently the fortune telling was not a problem for them. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. This is how shamefully treated they were. All they did was deliver a slave girl from being possessed by a demon. But it cost somebody some money, and so they didn't like it. And so it's kind of like back in the days of Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday, when he went traveling around America as a younger country, preaching for prohibition and preaching against alcohol abuse, which America had a real problem with it at that time. And he would see towns turn and change. And he would see kids who would run around dressed in rags end up in nicer clothes because the money of their parents wasn't going to alcohol anymore. It was actually going to the taking care of the children and providing better homes. And they actually saw economies of whole areas turn around because of the revival that took place at that time. But his life was also threatened many times by people who owned the establishments that sold those kinds of things. And that's exactly what happens to the Apostle Paul and Silas here. They see this young girl delivered from this bondage and the people say, hey, they just took away our best fortune teller. And so they stir up all this trouble and they, they have them stripped and beaten with rods. But when he gets put into prison and thrown into stocks, what do you actually find Paul and Silas doing? You know what you find them doing? Singing hymns, singing songs, praising God, proclaiming the gospel. And what happens out of that? God performs a miracle and all the, the jail doors spring open, but they don't leave. But the jail doors spring open and the jailer, thinking that everybody's gone and that his life is as good as nothing, now goes to take his own life. And the Apostle Paul says, don't hurt yourself. We're still here. And that Philippian jailer comes to Christ and he brings the Apostle to his place and his whole family comes to Christ. But in the midst of that, the Apostle Paul is being beat up on. He's in all kinds of opposition here. You know what the lesson is for us in this? Is that just because you face opposition does not mean that this is not the ministry that God has called you to. We've been promised opposition from all the way from the time of Christ. And seen even before that as even the prophets of Israel would pay a price for preaching the truth to Israel. He was persistent. So much so that in, in the book of Second Corinthians and the Apostle Paul would list some of the things that he endured for the sake of the Gospel. It says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty, 40 lashes less one. You see, the Jewish people, they weren't allowed to put you to death because they were under Roman authority. They could whip you 40 times. Just in case you miscounted, they want to make sure they didn't whip you more than 40 because then they could be in trouble. So they whipped you 39 times. The Apostle Paul says, five times I got 40 minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, in danger from my own people because they were hunting him down. Danger from Gentiles. Danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness. Danger at sea. Danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for the churches. You look at all the things, just the amount of times he was hit with something, either a whip or a rod, is astounding. And the Apostle Paul kept it up. It did not dissuade him in his ministry. When he gets, when he goes over to Philippi, saves one girl from a demonic pressure, 
and it lands him in the stocks in prison. He's singing praises rather than saying, what in the world was I thinking coming here? He was persistent. He stayed in there when it was tough. Well, not only do we see the requirement of persistence, but we also see the requirement of boldness. Also found in verse 2, he says, But though we had already suffered men shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. And so he said, you know what? even though we had all these pressures, even though we had been involved in this riot or involved in all this pressure, when they get to Thessalonica, you read Acts chapter 17, there's a big riot that ends up starting there because of them as well. And he says, in the midst of all that, what were we? We didn't shy away. We proclaimed the message boldly. If the church is going to wait for the world to be fascinated with the Gospel, to preach it, then we are missing the point. The world's not going to become fascinated with the Gospel. We're just commanded to go out and proclaim the Gospel. And we need to proclaim the Gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God for salvation. Romans chapter 1 tells us. It's the power of God and the salvation for everyone who believes. That's where salvation is found. And without the Gospel, people are just spending an eternity in hell, separated from God, paying for their own sins, all the while while Christ has already paid for their sins for them. And so we need to be bold with the proclamation of the Gospel. You know, it's our heritage. When you look at the apostles at the very beginning, when Christ was taken and crucified, they went and hid in fear. Not exactly the greatest examples there. They locked themselves in an upper room, afraid that the same thing that happened to Christ might happen to them. And so we see them kind of quivering. We see them from that point making other decisions. Peter says, you know what, I'm going back to fishing. Jesus would rise again and show Himself to them. Call him back to this and he'd tell him this, wait here in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. After that, you're going to be my witnesses. And you know what? That's what they did. They hung out in Jerusalem. They waited until Pentecost. They went to celebrate Pentecost at the temple and the Holy Spirit came upon them in power. And you know what? You don't find the apostles shrinking away ever again. Now they're bold. They're boldly proclaiming the gospel. And you know what? It gets them in trouble. The authorities don't like it. Why? Because the authorities are the same authorities that put Jesus on the cross. And so when they stand up and say, look, the guy that you guys hung on the cross was the Son of God, the Savior of the whole world, they're not liking that too much. And so they bring him in first and they say, let's threaten him. They threaten him. That doesn't work. Peter and John answer him, hey, look, whether you think we should obey you or obey God, you'll have to decide, but we got to do what we got to do. So they bring him in again and they beat him. When they're, when they're held on trial there and they're trying to, as I said, they're trying to stop them from proclaiming the gospel, this was their answer. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Now when they saw, this is the people that were trying to shut them up, now when they saw that the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. And what stands out to them? Their boldness. They will not be silenced. They will proclaim the truth. Later on in the same chapter, they go back to the disciples and they Tell them what happened and then they pray together. And it says, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. 
So the very thing that they were recognized as having by their enemies, they say, God, give us more of it. It's not easy to stand up under pressure. It's not easy to stand up and say, no, we will not be silenced. We're going to continue to proclaim exactly the message that you want us to stop. God, it's not easy, so continue to give us more boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of our, your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And notice, what was the, what was the sign of the Holy Spirit in this occasion? The evidence of the Holy Spirit is that they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. That's what we see here. He says, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, in other words, underneath all that pressure, As you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. In the midst of that conflict is exactly where the gospel needs to be preached. That's when it calls for boldness. The measure of our fortitude is not found in our times of ease. It's found in our times of stress. It's found in our times of opposition. The Apostle Paul said that their ministry was very effective. It was not in vain. Why? They were persistent in suffering. They were bold in their proclamation of the gospel. And they were also blameless in their character. He says in verse 3, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. In verse 5, he says, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext of greed. God is our witness. That's one of the things that I love about the Apostle's writings. There's so many places in his writings to these churches where he can look back and he could say, You know how we behaved among you. They conducted themselves with, a, with integrity. They conducted themselves with, a, with righteousness. In fact, later on in the passage, he says we had the right as apostles actually to be supported by the people that we're ministering to. He says, but we didn't even claim that right. We actually, we actually worked and provided our own needs and spent our time ministering to you as well. And he'd write that to several of the churches that he would write to. But the Apostle Paul would say, look, we didn't come with you with any impurity. We didn't come to you for any gain, trying to gain anything from you. We didn't take anything from you financially. We worked to pay for our own way. We treated you with character. We treated you with blamelessness. False teachers, you often find a certain amount of greed there, accumulation of a lot of things. In fact, in the New Testament, it often uses either their behavior in their conduct dealing with sin or their accumulation of possessions as pointing to uh, evidence of their false, that they're false teachers. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1-3, through 3, it says, But false prophets also arose uh, among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. And so within that passage, he points out that there's going to be false teachers. And one of the ways that you'll know that they're false teachers is because of their passions. And he says other people will follow them in the same pursuits of those unbridled passions. Some of them also in their greed in dealing with wealth. In Jude, in verses 3 and 4, it says, Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, 
I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So he wanted to write to them about their salvation, teaching them more stuff about their salvation. He says, but you know what? I found out, I found that I really had to stand up for the truth here. And he says, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who perverted the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So again, these false teachers would eventually show their true colors in not being able to contain their passions. He says, Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves. Waterless clouds swept along by winds. Fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead and uprooted. They followed the way of Balaam's error. What was Balaam's error? If you look back at Balaam, he was a prophet back in Old Testament Israel. And an enemy king of Israel came to Balaam and said, I want you to pronounce a curse upon Israel and I'll pay you handsomely for it. And Balaam says, I can only say what God tells me to say. But he wanted to. And so he, he tries. So the, the other king takes Balaam up on top of a mountain and he goes to curse Israel and he blesses Israel. And the king says, well, it must be the wrong mountain. Let's go over to this mountain and try it. So they keep hopping from mountain to mountain trying to pronounce a curse over Israel. And every time Balaam opens his mouth, he blesses Israel. So what do they do? Well, Balaam still wants the money. And so he says, i tell you what, king, this is what you do. You're not going to get God to curse Israel by having me pronounce a curse on Israel. But I'll give you the secret. I'll give you the kryptonite, so to speak. He says, why don't you go in and intermarry with those people? Why don't you teach them your customs and learn a few of theirs? They'll become friends with you and they'll start following your customs. They'll start worshiping your gods. And you know what? God himself will curse them. And you'll come out to the same conclusion. Why did Balaam do all that? He did it for a healthy paycheck. You see, the Apostle Paul in First Thessalonians, he says, you guys know we didn't behave like that. You guys know we bought our own food. You guys know that we stood before you with dignity and character, even amidst persecution and suffering. We were blameless before you. That's what God demands for his ministries to be effective, for his ministries to be worthwhile. In fact, when you look in First Timothy chapter 3, you find a, a list of, of things that as people are striving to be pastors or leaders within the church, this is a list of qualifications that he put out for him. Notice at the very beginning, he says an overseer must be above reproach. And then he goes through a whole list of things that make him above reproach. And then lastly, he kind of ends it. He says, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace and into the snare of the devil. But if you read through the list, it's basically just a, a list of integrity, good character traits. These are not the only people in the church. Everybody in the church is to be aspiring to these character traits. But when it comes time to pick in leadership, you better make sure there are people that have these character traits. It ought to be said of all of us. But you see, the ministry the Apostle Paul points to that was a worthwhile ministry. Why was that ministry not in vain? That ministry was not in vain because they were persistent, because they were bold with the proclamation of the gospel, because they were blameless in their character. And then lastly, because of the priority. And I think the priority kind of gives power to the last one. How were they able to be people of such strong character? Well, I think it's because the priority that they put of putting God first. Striving to please God and not man. In First Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4 says, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. In other words, the Apostle Paul says, you know what, when I, when I came to Thessalonica with the gospel, when I preached to you Thessalonians, I didn't come and proclaim what I thought would fill up the auditorium. 
I didn't come and proclaim what I thought would, would put people in the pews. You know what I proclaimed? He says, I proclaim the message of God. And he says, you know what? That's only, that only makes sense. Because it's God that commissioned me with the gospel. It's God that entrusted this gospel ministry to me. And so, you know what? That's what I'm concerned about. And he tests our hearts. And so in every circumstance, in every situation, whether favorable or unfavorable, I want to preach the gospel accurately. I want to please God, which means you're not going to put man as your highest priority. In verse 6, he also says, Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. No pastor ever likes those, those places where you find yourself in a confrontation over the truth or in, a, or in a touchy situation and you're worried about who are we going to lose because of this. It drives you to the Word of God to search the Scriptures again. It drives you to your knees in prayer asking God to give you the right spirit to go about it, the right knowledge, the right information. But in the end, you know what you got to do? You just stand up. And you just please the One who sent you. You know, I appreciate people are always coming to the back and thanking me for the message and all that stuff. And don't I appreciate that. Thank you very much. I recognize it's not, it's not me. It's God anyway. It's His Word. He's the one that wrote the book. But you know what? That can never, that can never be what drives the ministry. That can never be what drives or influences the message. The message has to come right from God Himself. And results be what they may. That's what the Apostle Paul did. We find him that same example of him in Acts chapter 20 and verse 20. He's meeting with the elders from Ephesus. He says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. You realize we're talking about a guy that, that at times had to get lowered down <laughs> an apartment on the outside wall of the city with a, in a basket to get him out of a place because people were hunting him down. So he obviously wasn't just trying to please people. But the Apostle Paul says, look, I didn't hold anything back from you that I thought was to your benefit from the Word of God. Uh, Several verses later, in verses 26 and 27, he says, Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Anything where the Word of God applied, he did not hold back on it. And he says, that's why I can stand before God with a clear conscience. You know, when he would write to Timothy, the Apostle Paul would write to him, all Scripture is breathed out by God. And because of that, because it's breathed out by God, it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Notice it does include things like reproof and correction. Because of that, then in chapter 4, the very next thing he says is, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the Word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers who suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. You see what he tells him? He says, Timothy, we've got the Word of God. You need to proclaim the Word of God. And he says, you know what? The time's coming when people are not going to want to hear the Word of God. They're going to want to heap to themselves teachers that are going to tell them what their itching ears want to hear. So what does he tell Timothy to do? Preach the Word. When it's convenient, when it's inconvenient, all the time, in all seasons, he says, preach the Word. 
Well, you know, the Apostle Paul had a worthwhile ministry for sure. Actually, if we look at Philippi where he went through all that suffering, he had a worthwhile ministry. Ended up with a church, a Philippian church. Started with a lady down by the river and her family. A few others. Started with the Philippian jailer and his family. He had a worthwhile ministry in Thessalonica. Even though there would be a riot caused there by him there as well. He had a worthwhile ministry there. Why did he have that? Why was his ministry not in vain? Well, obviously, some, a lot of it is just God. It's God working, doing what He does. But our end of it, our end of it is the same as what Paul's end of it was. He was persistent. He hung in there. He was bold. In the midst of all that suffering, he could boldly proclaim the Gospel. He didn't get off message or, start, or let himself and his own problems and concerns become the focus and the priority. He remained bold in his proclamation of the Gospel. He was blameless in his character. And we must be that. We must be that. If we are not that, then we will rightly deserve the label of hypocrite that so much of the world wants to put upon the church. But most of the time, I think it's just a cop-out. And we gain all these through what? By making it a priority. By having our priority right. By making sure that we're pleasing God and not man.